So Black Girl Ventures, we work to create access to capital for Black and Brown women founders. I started it because I got the news that women weren't getting access to capital. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's just do something about it. Welcome to episode seven of the second season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zeri Amma. Our podcast aims to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we're sharing an interview we did at the beginning of November with Shelley Bell, founder and CEO of Black Girl Ventures where we talk about how female entrepreneurs have been hit by the pandemic, about Black Girl Ventures' pioneering approach to crowdfunding female entrepreneurs and why inclusion is key to progression in tech. A couple of news stories uh, this week have caught my eye, Paul, both of them related to fitness, in fact. Um, Have you been staying fit during the pandemic? I have been doing much more running. I started running uh, in earnest about two or three years ago where I did the the couch to 5k and then I did the winter run at the beginning of 2019, I think it was. Well, yes, it would have been 2019, the winter run 10k in London. And then during the pandemic, I think I've been out two, three times a week running, listening to podcasts, headphones in, not very social, but plenty of running. How about you? Not similar, actually. So I've been doing lots of running. I've really got into it. So I run most weekdays now. Really like it. I don't think, I don't know what I'd have done without it this year. It's been a been mm. absolute lifesaver. And I've been trying to get out and go for walks whenever I can. I've always been a quite a big fan of fitness at home as well, even before lockdown. So I'm not a massive gym person. I have quite a lot of old school exercise. DVDs which I'm very fond of <laughs> but you haven't you haven't bought a Peloton yet the bike I, I keep looking at those where about a year ago I saw somebody using one of those in a shopping center and I thought what's the point in that and now I can see what the point might be in that <laughs> I've not bought one of those yeah I'm definitely a, a runner rather than a, a, a cyclist um the reason I wanted to talk about this is that a few days ago there was a, a story which I think you picked up on the BBC about how there's been an absolute boom in home fitness in particular digital fitness unsurprisingly during the the pandemic Um, so Strava has reported that uh, each month this year an average of two million have been registering with its app for the the very first time and there are a number of other apps as well who've also seen a a real increase in use so I I think this is a a really positive development I think anything which encourages people to get out and, and get fit and to do things that are in their control at a time when everyone's under a a lot of stress and feels quite restricted is a really good thing but of course what comes with that is some concerns about data privacy and what organizations who run these apps are are doing with those insights yeah and it's great i think it's great you know i'm a big fan of the annual update from spotify that tells me how much music i've listened to over the year for example and it's always really interesting to me and i always really like it but the fact that that data is collected and shared with you is kind of nice i think the idea that you know they put out this annual statement about the state of their app and the the adoption of their app is is quite key as well but then they do get into the demographics a bit more and i saw that they said that women apparently have led the charge on this this year 100 108 percent increase 
in 18 to 29 year old women um, starting to run and starting to use the app. And I think, you know, it's it, it's about making most of that time outdoors, isn't it? And making sure that we are getting away from our desks and, and getting out there and seeing the, the outside world, breathing the fresh air and going for a run. Yeah, but I think you're right. It's, it's how they use this data, how they collect it, how they store it. We were talking just before we came on, and I've been an Apple customer for god probably about 10 years now i do have an apple watch and that's what i use to, to track my runs and the reason i've stayed with apple all this time is that i think they take data seriously and as far as i know and as far as i'm concerned only really ever use my data to improve the products that i buy from them rather than to improve the products of third parties that they might sell my data to. And I guess that chimes well with another story that's out this week about um, Google's EU Fitbit deal. Yeah, so this is really interesting that Google, some people may know, were planning to acquire Fitbit and that has actually now been awarded approval by the the EU. I'm personally very surprised that this deal has been allowed to to happen. I'm a Fitbit user. I use it to track my exercise and lots of other stuff as well. And obviously, like everyone else on the face of the planet, I'm a massive user of Google too. But I am really quite astonished the picture that Google could potentially build of people about what they're thinking and feeling and their behaviours and what they're doing at different times of day through the Fitbit data set is is a bit of a concern. Now, the the conditions of the deal apparently are that there needs to be a technical separation between the the two organisations, Google and and Fitbit, if I've understood this correctly. But nevertheless, the fact that there's a huge global organisation like Google that has got access to this amount of data on people, this extraordinary insight into how they are living their everyday lives that does give me pause for thought and I will be interested to see how this develops yeah I think you're I think you're right if you marry it to all the other data that Google has about you from your web searches and the way that you work and the way that you uh, organize your lives then uh, adding this into the mix is just another sort of a deeper level isn't it and I think there's a general discussion over the role that technology has played in sporting life altogether, actually. I've just made a note of a couple of other things that I think technology-wise have happened during the pandemic. We've seen a a rise in competitive gaming, particularly at the beginning of lockdown when competitive sport wasn't allowed. And when we spoke to Rodri earlier in the season, our first episode, I think we talked about the role that potentially competitive gaming and online gaming might play in the the world of fundraising. But that's an interesting one that's been around for a number of years but has really taken off again. I think the other one that uh, other topic that I'm quite interested in is the, the the rise of illegal streaming and football and how that's starting to have an impact all, all across Europe. And I just heard yesterday, I think that the French Football League closed their television contract, which is worth billions uh, for French football teams, in part, not solely, but in parts due to um, illegal streaming of football. So that tech question in sport and in some of the other things that we've taken to and adopted more than ever across the pandemic is is really starting to to take off. Yes, absolutely. And I just want to reassure anyone who might be particularly concerned by the Google and and Fitbit story, as I am, that apparently you will get the option if you're in the European economic area uh, to approve or deny the use of fitness health data 
order to inform other Google services. So when you do see that pop up on your Fitbit app, do take the time to read it carefully and think about the, the permissions you're granting. I say that to myself as a note as much as any anything else, because I'm sure many of us will just blindly click away and, and, and let what will be will be. But this could have quite serious implications in my view. And at the risk of sounding a bit blue Peter, we also ought to probably say here and now that that's probably the case for a lot of the technology that you're going to be buying for yourself and for your children over the festive period. So anything like a Fitbit, Xboxes and Playstations and all these sorts of things, every time you sign into accounts on those, they ask if they can share user data and things like that back to the company. And they, they talk about it as, as, as improving the product. But yes, do read through all of that, particularly when you're setting up things like Alexa and other things like that for your kids this Christmas. Yeah, I support that. And I did a short project a few years ago for a um, youth charity where I was asked to look at some of the kind of tech innovations going on aimed at children and there's some great stuff out there there's also some stuff where you really need to do your due diligence in particular there are a couple of projects involved in internet of things where you know they just were really not secure and there were some very worrying news stories about them so I agree with what you're saying I think definitely make sure you go through all the small print and do check things out look at all the reviews well that's our public service announcements out the way so that's (laughs) that's all good and on to the interview then. I think we were really, really excited to welcome Shelley Bell from Black Girl Ventures on to the podcast. And this was prompted, as you'll hear in the interview, by a story that she'd taken part in for Wired, which was uh, interested in the role that the pandemic was playing in the lives of female entrepreneurs and the impact that it was having on them. So apologies for any technical hiccups during this. We had a few dips in, in quality. Zoe's internet connection in particular sort of dropped in and out. So you've got a bit more of me this time for better or for worse but it was a great interview Shelley's a great guest and we even had a good discussion about some exciting Christmas watching and TV at the end so stay tuned for that right at the end but this is our interview with Shelley. So Shelley was named as one of Entrepreneur Magazine's top 100 powerful women in business. She's a computer scientist, system disruptor and business strategist who moves ideas to profit while empowering people to live, build and foster better relationships. She connects entrepreneurs, investors and corporations in order to diversify their talent pipeline, increase equity and grow their brands. Her organisation, Black Girl Ventures, is a culturally converging ecosystem. This is your words, not mine. It's quite impressive, though. Igniting economic security, civic engagement and hyperlocal infrastructure at the intersection of STEM education and entrepreneurship for black and brown women identifying founders, funders and veterans. Since 2016, Black Girl Ventures has funded 91 women, increased access to social capital for over 180 programme participants and launched their efforts in 10 cities across the US. She's trained over 5,000 entrepreneurs held over 300 events for empowering leaders, managed multi-million dollar contracts and helped scale over 200 businesses. Welcome Shelley Bell to our podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm excited. Good. And, and how are you? I mean, life, life over in the US has been quite quiet recently. So how are you coping? <laughs> <laughs> I think we could all use a bit of that quiet, right? Um, or has it? Because I feel like it is maybe been quiet from uh, the stage, right? But I think like in our communities, it's still, you know, still very loud. Um, lots of protesting in D.C. And I live in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, which is called DMV. And um, in the DMV area, um, you know, still protesting a few rallies here and there. What was the atmosphere like now in, in the U.S.? I mean, certainly over in the U.K., I think was an overriding atmosphere of a sense of relief. 
Trump sort of gone last week, a vaccine coming in, uh, 95% effective this week. I mean, seems to be a, a better time already. Yeah, for sure. I think we are, some of us are having a sense of celebration and then some of us have a sense of fight, right? And so I think that um, it's exciting to know that we will have the first woman vice president ever. And then more specifically, that woman will be a woman of color. And so I think like we are seeing a really exciting time, you know, evolve right in front of us. You know, the flip side, we still have our COVID numbers going up. And so we're even slipping back into quarantine to a certain extent. Um, the, you know, the different states are recommending uh, lower capacity numbers, you know, but then also schools are trying to slightly open back up and now we're having like a staggered schedule. So a bit of a roller coaster ride such as 2020 has been, but you know, to say the least from a political standpoint, some of us are in celebration, some of us in a little bit of fight. But I think overall the world just feels like we're in a really like slightly uncomfortable place right now. And we're, we're really looking for places to kind of just find some peace. I mean, you know that, but then on the other side, like some businesses uh, are finding their way and you know, people haven't stopped ordering online. People haven't stopped ordering food. People haven't stopped, you know, using your uh, your DoorDash and your Uber Eats of the world. So we're seeing our economy take an interesting, very hyper-technological turn. But at least having the uh, the election kind of settle is is a relief for sure. We, you know, coming off the back in the UK where we're still today uh, going through Parliament discussions about Brexit. And we've been in that position absolutely where... A divided nation where you know there's as much uh, celebration as there is fighting and uh, as much opportunity as there is problems and, and, and issues that we need to solve. Yeah, 100%. I'm optimistic though. I mean, maybe because I'm just a serial optimistic, but I have hope that we're going to see some really significant changes. I mean, this is the first time that we've ever heard our president-elect openly denounce white supremacy, right, in that way, and, like, say, like, we need to move forward as a nation. So that creates a lot of hope. I think this next administration has a lot of, there's a lot, a lot on their plate because they have to rebuild democracy, rebuild trust for government outside of, you know, policy changes and lawmaking and, and actually governing the country. But I'm hopeful. I'm excited to see where business is going to go. I think this is a huge opportunity for a economic upshift and what could be new, like what could happen new? What's the new innovations? If you had cleaning companies before, your, your cleaning company is needed on a whole other level <laughs> right now. <laughs> and I think like, how, we, how will we figure out how to be, like figuring out how to be? And it's, it's like the whole, your whole life, right? Like how to be a student now looks different. How to be in a relationship now looks different. How to be married, how to care for children, how to run a business. It looks different. And so I'm excited for innovations that will come out of this period. But just on that point, I was listening to a podcast the other day when they were talking about online only relationships. People are entering in relationships that they've just sort of created on Zoom. They've never actually met each other. It just sounds absolutely bonkers. <laughs> I know, right? Who would have Who would have known that we'd be here? I think it's interesting because it might be a really great opportunity to build relationships that are not purely relying on physicality. Because if you look at, you know, our divorce rate kind of creeping up as well during this time, because people were together more than they've ever been in their entire lives. They were with their children and with each other more than they have ever been. And so you could not ignore some of the things that were happening there. And I think equally with, with business is like people had to sit with their business model having to adapt, which also caused you to discover some things you may not have thought about. If you were doing services, you may not have thought about shifting and doing products. 
or at least not right now, you know, and if you had a community who was used to meeting in person, like we were, you know, we had to shift to moving into an online community. And then when we did, we, we are so hyper-local, like we focus hyper-local across different cities. We also had to realize that, like, how do we still focus on the women in the cities that we want to serve directly? And this new batch of people who are in national, international, who now are like, hey, we want in on this information in this community too. It's a good, you know, challenge to have. We want to figure out how we serve more and all people. So please t- tell us about Black Girl Ventures and why you set it up and the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, so Black Girl Ventures, we work to create access to capital for Black and Brown women founders. And one of the ways that we do that is we have this unique pitch competition that couples like Shark Tank and Kickstarter. So it is crowdfunded and a pitch competition. So people pitch from the stage and the audience actually goes into their own pockets and donates to the founders who are pitching. We also have a proprietary software platform that we use to capture the voting and the donating. I started it because I got the news that women weren't getting access to capital. And I'd already built a business of my own. I mean, I've been on a roller coaster ride of what it means to be an entrepreneur, building business, getting new partners, bigger partners, using supplier diversity to really, really level up, using relationship building to raise more capital to grow your business. And when I got the news, I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's just do something about it. And so I pulled together women. It was about 30 women showed up in a house in Southeast D.C., and we four women pitched and we voted with marbles and coffee mugs. Like, so if you like that person's pitch, you put your marble in their coffee mug. And I cooked all the food myself, which I vowed to never do again. And there we were giving the money that we had raised back out in cash. I, and I really didn't think a lot about it, but people liked it. And so I kept doing it. And I'm like, okay, well, this is cool. It's got a model. You know, we had a business model behind a revenue model. And so I kept doing it, went out to the community to get partnerships with like co-working spaces and people who had venues. And we started doing it locally here in D.C. And it became popular and people loved it. So I did a call for a volunteer team. We put a application process in place and we started offering training. So we would do training. They would have pitch coaching and then there would be the pitch competition. Kept doing that and then landed a partnership with Google, Google Cloud for startups to be specific and started traveling across the country doing it in Google offices in different places. And so from there, we went from having 30, 40 people, 45 people, 50 people to like 200 plus people per city that we were going to. Atlanta, Chicago, D.C., New York, Detroit, Baltimore, Austin, because we, Texas, because we would do South by Southwest. After that testing, I'm like, we're, really, we're on to something. Uh, so many people wanted me to come to their cities. And I'm like, I, can't, I actually can't <laughs> go to everybody's <laughs> city. And so we ended up receiving funding from the U.N. Marion Kaufman Foundation to launch chapters. And the idea for the chapters was to just take what I had come up with, create a toolkit out of it, and actually share it with communities for them to be able to create access to capital on their own for their own communities. Um, and so we recruited 25 women across five cities that had made five women on the ground across the different cities. We trained them. We were all geared up for the launch. And then boom, COVID happens, right? <laughs> so COVID happens. We, we were able to successfully launch pretty large in um, Philly and in Houston, and then had to shut down the rest of the launches and go virtual. So we continue with the women uh, in those cities, definitely delivering the training and activating their communities, and then created this online incubator platform where we have, we are directly serving women. So we, we do co-working every Wednesday, all day long, and then we do pitch practice at night. And so people are able to come in, see people who are working through some of the challenges they're working through or, or who have already worked through it. 
So peer mentoring, other training, coaching, support. We started a Black Women in Entrepreneurship Support Group, Women in Entrepreneurship Support Group that we hold monthly. Um, and so that's been just like for, for the mental side of building a business. Mm-hmm. And we think about it in a standpoint of like, how do we serve the entrepreneur holistically in a way that says, if the entrepreneur is served, then they can grow the business. And that's the way we think about it. And so, yeah, we, here we are. We funded 104 women today. We've had about 200 women come through our pipeline. We have, like I said, five chapters across the country, an organic reach of about a million people in general. And we've been really focusing on how can we connect founders to larger opportunities. So we're working with a couple of different corporations on having corporate mentors be engaged, supply diversity efforts. And it's really, you know, when I say create access to capital, we really look at it as create. It's like somebody's access to capital may be a new job, a better Mm -hmm. job. Somebody's access to capital may be an investor, maybe a grant, maybe a loan, maybe a partnership or peer mentoring. Because social and financial capital, right? All the money comes from who you know. And I saw a quote that you said that Black Girls Ventures role is to concentrate on raising the average rather than bridging the gap. So I'm assuming that what you're looking for really is the focus on long-term change rather than short-term fixes. So in your view, what what needs to be put in place beyond what you're doing to ensure that strategy can work long-term? Yeah, I think a couple of things that should be thought about is more patient capital. So capital from institutions, investors, and grant opportunities that really are in it for the long haul and thinking that if I infuse entrepreneurs with capital at this stage, then they will be able to reach certain heights and looking at like what that looks like. Also, public-private partnerships with a focus on entrepreneurship, I think could be really huge for uh, what makes sense. I think the government taking, different governments taking a stronger look at supplier diversity and actually figuring out what it means to push the needle on that and where these government entities or the um, corporations can't just cop out with like, oh, well, we couldn't find any um, underrepresented founders or, you know, oh, well, we, we're so used to funding these five large contractors that we we trust them more, you know? And it's like, encouraging those contractors who have kind of locked up the opportunities to push out and go find other people to partner with, or they're not going to continue to get their funding. So I think it is like figuring out ways to create scalable, repeatable processes that could really encourage um, more innovation in the idea of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion versus just thinking about let, how can we be diverse and, and more equitable? But like, yes. And what kind of technology supports that? What kind of transparency supports that? What kind of repeatable processes supports that? Are you thinking about it from the onset of building out your programs or hiring or versus starting what you're doing and then, and then saying, oops, oh, wow, you know what? We need to be more equitable. Like <laughs> we need to think about women. Okay, well, women and people of color have been around for a really long time. So it's time that we figure a way to think about people from the beginning of building companies and building programs within companies versus, you know, having to do the oops after you're, you know, 10 years into building. Shelly, I absolutely love what you're doing, especially because one of my frustrations that I hear from a lot of people who work in the VC industry or who are pitching to VCs is that lack of diversity. So I I think this is a, a great 2020 question to ask, isn't it? If you could redesign the VC industry, what would it look like? (laughs) To be frank, 
and fairly diplomatically radical, VCs will have more Black friends. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like it is diversity kind of starts with diversifying your portfolio of people. And that that means your portfolio of people you invest in, but also learn about new cultures. Like we can do it when we travel abroad. You know, people have no problem traveling abroad to various different countries and then learning how to uh, get acclimated to what that country requires. When there's people here, maybe in your own country, wherever you are, that you have not gotten acclimated to yet for whatever reason, you just chosen not to. It's interesting. Like a lot, like I said, a lot of the investment comes from social capital. So I wonder what it would look like for more venture capitalists to become friends and family. So when we think about the friends and family round, I wonder what it would take for more venture capitalists and angel investors to become friends and family with more uh, people who are not like them or not in their realm or not in their industry. And that could be women, that could be underrepresented founders, that could be like taking the opportunity to build relationships themselves. I think founders feel like a lot is on them to do the work. And I think even in government, right? The government says, you come to us, we don't come to you. And I think that when we think about the business development corporations and the small business efforts across the country, because the startup world kind of just jumped out there and started doing its own thing, not as many people may be going to some of the small business efforts that existed, you know, when technology wasn't booming as much or startups weren't so popular. So I would say one would be that for all of the venture capitalists and investors to check their LinkedIn's and think through how many pages it takes them before they get to a woman or a person of color and then revamp that. The next thing would be considering when you think about a relationship building outside of that, like you actually going out to the communities and putting some time in. And another thing would be leading with your dollars if you're serious, right? You don't have to lead with your intellect. You don't have to lead with your logic. I was just saying to someone, investing is, we keep pretending that it's blackjack, but it's roulette. So trying to define the odds of who you're playing against and play smart because of that, like that just, that's just not real. And that is more roulette where you're like, Ooh, I think it's going to work. I think it's going to work. Boom. I'm putting my money on this. Um, So it would be like reframing perception that investors have that's, you know, very capitalistic, which that's conversations to be had around how people feel about capitalism. Um, but I think there's some relationship building that could be added to in context. I think as Gary Vita says, content is king, but context is God. So, you know, in that way of thinking about context around founders versus just content. One thing I was going to say that sort of goes back to the, the very first point there about go and look for the connections you've got within your existing network that you can build relationships with. The common theme that we've heard when we've had this question across the podcast has always been, well, how do you tackle diversity? And the answer is be more intentional around your approach to diversity. If you've got a shortage of people within the organisation of black, brown people, go and hire them. They're out there. They're, they're waiting to be found. And you just need to you need to put the extra effort in to find them. And I think that's a very well made point. Absolutely. I mean, it's a about owning the challenge isn't it and saying that you need to do this stuff better and committing to doing it better so with that in in mind thinking about what this brave new world could look like especially 
post pandemic with with even more more change happening. So Shelley, you obviously come from this computer science background, a really strong advocate in supporting STEM education and entrepreneurship for black and brown women. And several times in this podcast, as as Paul says, and also in in many previous interviews as well, and we've talked about the role that a lack of diversity in the tech industry is playing really helping create a a very unfair playing field that is, is just not level and where a lot more needs to be done. So if we could wave that magic wand, what needs to change to help the next generation of black and brown tech entrepreneurs rise to the fore? Yeah, well, I would love to see the where you find out about entrepreneurship more intentionally being earlier in age. So, I mean, I would love for the thought of being a business owner, being inserted into career days and early, uh, you know, in the career assessments that we give students, even being inserted there, where it's like those career assessments kind of spit out your traditional things. You know, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer, you should be a teacher, you should be you know, but I, I wonder, I also wonder what they would look like from a vocation standpoint. You should learn how to code. You should be an electrician. You should be an entrepreneur. You should start your own agency doing this. I would love to see more level two programs. So right now, a lot of the accelerators and incubators are offering like business 101. Cover your customer, lay out your business plan canvas. But there are some people who are in business who need a level two, which is how do I go deeper on a particular uh, revenue segment? How do I go deeper on a customer segment? Help with automation. I would also love to see marketing taught more broadly because I think, again, with the business 101, it's just like, hey, you need to do marketing. What's your marketing segments? But it doesn't go into like, let's help you develop a strong marketing strategy for increasing your revenue. Let's help you develop HR documents. Like, I think professional services is going to be a huge part of what's needed to see the next batch of entrepreneurs really, really thrive. The DIY takes you so far. And then after that, you're going to need to bring in some experts. Um, But if you don't um, have those experts really available or haven't gleaned the capital yet to be able to bring those experts in, then you find yourself having to DIY it, you know, a long time to come. Like bootstrap as long as you can. But as soon as you don't have the DIY, hire people, even if it's small projects, to really, really help you level up. The the, um, professional services organizations must be, I would imagine, falling over themselves to get involved with you and what you're doing, are they? Yeah, we do have. So we have a couple of law offices that come our way. So yeah, we do actually. Um, These are still paid for services. So we want to be, you know, make sure that we find the people with the right packages that can make sense for the entrepreneurs at every level, because entrepreneurs are, you have to be at least a year in business and you have to be revenue generating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're a little bit lenient on the revenue generating depending on what you have, because if you've had to like really focus on building your tech product out, or if you have a tool you have to really focus on getting your mold done and like finalizing your product, but you may be past idea phase. So we don't necessarily work with people in idea phase directly. We do have a partner that we work with that does a launch camp and then they, that's where people can get started. And then we focus on the more like leveling you up with capital and training. So yeah, we getting people connected to those professional services is super important. And we do have uh, lots of firms that reach out. We're always looking for more. You know, if there are people who are willing to offer 30-minute consultations, mm-hmm. because we see ourselves as complementary to that because they are able to offer those 30-minute consultations and get business, right? It's like um, in the professional services realm, a lot of that's word of mouth. A lot of that is through discovery calls and figuring out whether or not it is a, a company that can actually afford your services and somebody you want to serve. So we welcome firms out there who are willing to do discovery calls that potentially land in business. 
And just to go back to another point that you mentioned, I think I completely agree that hopefully as entrepreneurs, you know, Zoe and I would class ourselves as, ourselves as entrepreneurs and consultants, but hopefully our kids coming coming home and seeing, you know, dad recording a podcast, dad doing this at the kitchen table, we're, we're building these businesses at home. And I'm hoping that that rubs off on our kids coming in and seeing that there is a world outside of that career path that would take you to, you know, law firms or teachers or scientists or whatever that, that still need filling, but there is an option. I was just going to ask, you said your daughter's in the background watching something on the computer. Do you know what she has ambition to do, having a mum like you? Yeah, I mean, I have three children now together. My oldest son has creative aspirations in writing and in music. So that's interesting to watch him kind of unfold. He's in his last year of college and I'm just wanting him to figure it out. My, my, <laughs> my 18-year-old son just went into college and is a theater kid. He wants to actually be an educator, which I was an educator for a while. I also did performance poetry. So he got to see a lot of that life unfold. My six-year-old, she is into making things. She actually likes science and math. Um, she really likes mixing formulas. So I can imagine that she's going to do something in the beauty world having to do with with chemicals or something. You know, you know the kids of today, they, they want to see their skill be put to use and then see the color right in front of them. Whereas like we were kind of, I think, told, I don't know what generation you are, people out there, but growing up, I feel like people were pumping to me, just like be smarter, learn the material. And it was like with no evidence of why I was learning it or no like instant gratification on that that I had learned it other than like a number or A or B or whatever. And I think living in this society of instant gratification, we're going to see people want to take on more jobs that actually show them some love back immediately. And so I think this is why like the tech world works in the way it works is because you know you're part of this bigger thing that's affecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And so every part of that makes that work. On top of like, I think we're gonna, we're seeing and we'll continue to see an insurgence of people uh, leaning into the gig economy. Yeah. So you're not having to go through so many different mediums to actually get a customer you can actually put some marketing in place and the world is your oyster at that point. One question, so I wanted to sort of move into a, a slightly different area, but the Wired article was obviously about the gender gap, particularly female entrepreneurs and the risks there. So interestingly, the article talks about previous recessions having hit men harder, but this time that the reverse is true. And it says that there are around a third, women are a third more likely to work in a sector that was shut down during lockdown. They're also more likely to be furloughed, 47% more likely to have lost or quit their job. Plus, on top of that, they've shouldered more childcare responsibilities and household work than men. So the question, I guess, is how much wider could the pandemic open the gender gap without due care and attention to the issue? And how worried should we actually be? Lord knows, Paul. I'm hoping not, <laughs> <laughs> not much wider. So it's interesting because a lot of the numbers around hiring, at least in the U.S., uh, they speak to payroll taxes only, right? So if you don't have official payroll as a, as a company organization or corporation, then technically the people you, if you don't have payroll, then technically the people you are hiring, even though you may give it, be, be, give, be giving them work, um, is not counted. So when you look at the unemployment rate and those numbers, right now, the formula seems to be based off of who's on a payroll, that they did, it does not account for who is actually working in the gig economy, contractors, freelancing. And for whatever reason, we have not yet started counting employing yourself as having a job. So I think that the numbers in some 
instances may or may not make sense. I think what those numbers say to me is that women have taken more ownership and women have decided to launch their own things because it makes sense for the way that sounds related to the fact that we're now seeing a 40, 50, 60, 70% uptick in women starting businesses, right? Like we're seeing uh, women of color be the fastest growing business segment in the country, you know, starting business at six times the national average. And so with that, that's just letting me know that payroll wise, we may not be on the books that they're counting for employment, but that we're out here building businesses and, and growing them. I'm hoping that it does not widen the gap, but the pandemic has exacerbated the problem. It's not that this wasn't a problem already. It is just becoming so apparent to us that we can no longer deny it. We can no longer act like it doesn't exist because we have to measure how the pandemic is affecting everybody in order for us to create data around econ- around the economy. And so that means that when these numbers are pulled out, we have to start thinking of solutions and innovative ways to push things forward. You know, in administrative plans that are coming out around how things work, we're going to have to be pushing on, this is great, but does it create jobs for women? You know, this is awesome. Yes, we want more technology. Yes, we want more broadband. Yes, we want more construction. But does the construction jobs create more jobs for women? Eh, not necessarily. Now, has it created programming for women to get into construction? Eh, not necessarily, right? And so I think we just have to, while we are all uncomfortable, we have to figure out like not to go back into the comfort of like the wage gap being okay, but to go into a place of saying, ooh, that was uncomfortable. Okay, how do, what does the new normal look like? How do we move forward? I actually don't want us to get, quote unquote, back to anything. I want us to get forward to a lot of great things that could potentially happen. I think that, that's a message that we've heard on these podcasts time and time again, that there's such an opportunity to go into the future with, with a different step forward, that we can learn from this and start to, to do things differently. And I think the biggest fear for me is that you know, we all just regress back particularly when it comes to types of business behaviours and certainly the workplace. There was a big push to get back into the office, I think, earlier in the summer in the UK. And everyone said, oh, it will be great because we can just get back to the office. I think that reality is is probably going to change from underneath us and something that we really do do need to focus on. So I think you're you're well placed in the shared workspaces and things like that, because I think that's the place that we're all going to, to fall into. So we've been involved in several live local crowdfunding events. So uh, in fact, there have been a couple in St. Albans in Hertfordshire in the UK, uh, where I'm based, not so far from where Paul lives as well. Uh, And they're run by a charity called the Funding Network. And it's a format that works really, really well. And we thought, bizarrely, there's actually a bit of crossover with what you guys are trying to do. It's very different in that it's all about getting live crowdfunding support for small local charities in the Hertfordshire area. But we were thinking that actually what you're doing with your amazing pitch events with BGV and how you modelled them on, I think, the rent parties of the early 1920s. I love that kind of collision of something that happened long before digital and then updating it and using it for a new way of getting support and resources for this new generation of entrepreneurs. Can you tell us a bit more about how you came across that idea of the the rent parties and how you got inspired and, and took those ideas forwards? It's actually historical. So in the early 1900s, um, during the Great Migration, uh, Black people migrated to Harlem. 
and white landowners raised the rent. And so what they did to stay in those homes is they threw parties, which were called rent parties. And so these were basement parties, but not your average parties. Like we, you have people who are considered African-American greats like Langston Hughes, Duke Ellington, that's Waller involved in these parties. And they would take that capital and pay rent with it. So it's, it's actually building on something that has been a part of Black culture for years. And we're just now moving into what could happen in the startup realm. As we look at, you know, the need for Black and Brown entrepreneurs to raise capital and, and having to struggle with that because of bias in the, in the VC world, consider that Black people have only had the opportunity to be in business uninterrupted for about 60 years. And, you know, weighing like 60 years, you know, somebody that's 60 years old right now, right? Mm -hmm. Considering that like up against institutions that have been around for hundreds of years, that's a fairly short amount of time. So our ability to raise capital, grow capital, have a bank account, have voting rights, have like all these things that have played into this, you know, parallel to women's issues, right? Have been in place for a fairly short amount of time. And so without taking that context into consideration around like, you know, those rent parties were a must have because of bias. I consider like looking at what we're doing now, similarly, like if we don't find a way to get black and brown people a friends and family round, then we are doing a disservice to what we call these diversity, equity and inclusion efforts. I think uh, I think linking it all the way back to that is, is is amazing. But as you said, it was absolutely essential for it to happen then. It's absolutely essential for it to happen now. And I think that's the, the really strong fall through from that. And it's interesting, isn't it? In those events, we've, as I said, as Zoe said, you know, the one we've run is, is local to us in St Albans, but those ones have been, uh, those uh, the funding network is, uh, I think it's a global organisation, certainly. Um, certainly they do events across the UK. And there was one that we took part in earlier in the summer, which was the first one running in, in COVID times. And like you said at the beginning of our interview, the opportunity for something that usually happens in a small room in the middle of a small city in, in Hertfordshire in the UK, suddenly to expand its walls out to the entire world. And we had people on that call from Mexico, from all across Europe, from Australia, all taking the opportunity to sort of come into that room and give to charities that just desperately, desperately need that money. The question is really, do you see these online pitch competitions? Do you see them as, as having a, a big part to play in the future of BGV? Or is it something that you, you hope you can get back into the room? Considering a new normal, I think we're going to be a hybrid of, you know, virtual and physical from here on out, I don't, I don't know that at least for the next, you know, two years that anybody's going to want to gather 200 people in a room, you know, even though people are going back to the clubs and bars and things like that, I, I don't know that we would feel comfortable as, a, as an organization taking on a liability of, you know, 100 people be 200 people be in a room right now, considering one, our numbers are going back up Two, there's no vaccine. And even if a vaccine comes out by the beginning of the year, nobody will trust it for another two years. So, you know, it's, it, because it just doesn't make sense to have a vaccine come out that fast, right? And I think, you know, it, it, it really allows us to be able to serve a global audience. And we're going in that direction anyway. We've actually had some conversations about coming to the UK and bringing our efforts there. And so we are, you know, we'll hope to roll some of that out over the next five years. You know, once we find great partners in the UK, is there anybody out there listening? We will help you. Yes, we will. We would love to bring our city. Okay. So yeah, I think we'll be a bit of a hybrid. I think, you know, we want to, we, we're taking our time. This is brand new 
we're doing a great job at serving and, and growing the community as it is globally. People can be involved whether we have a competition there or not. And so we still are serving them with training and webinars and peer mentoring and things like that. I think we'll be a bit of a hybrid for a while. I could I could see something where like maybe the competitors are in space in a space and we could film live. Some employees inside of Goldman Sachs, they did this uh, internal pitch competition where like we were in a BGV fan room on Zoom, but the actual people pitching were in a physical location in New York. And then the judges were like three or four people in the audience. So, and that was kind of cool to do. Like, and the feed was looped in and everybody could watch from wherever they are and like that kind of thing. So, so I think there would be some interesting ways to do some innovative things like that. Um, eventually, like right now, we're, we're going to do like a BGV fan room for one of the upcoming competitions. And so we'll have people on Zoom. We'll be engaging with them and they'll be watching the competition uh, with us live. But the competition will be like airing online, too. So I think we're, we're thinking about like, how can we create networking opportunities? Keep the relationship building aspect going while people are, are distant from each other. And it goes back to what you said right at the beginning about widening the opportunity. That's the most important thing. But if the, the technology enables you to do that, then all the better. Finally, one, one question left. We lend you our genie in a bottle and you've got one wish left. What one wish do you have for 2021? And it can be personal, business, societal, you choose, whatever, but you've only got one. If I had one wish, I would ask for more wishes. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> Um, Everyone says that. That's cheating. That's what my I, that's what my eight year old would say. Definitely. I know, I know, because that's the only answer that makes sense. But if I guess if I had to have one wish, I would wave a wand and deliver a really true, authentic understanding of the layers, suffering, and celebrations of Black culture to every person on the planet. I mean, I would, I would deliver in a way that was as if it was your own. I think with the murder of George Floyd, we saw it be undeniable for the first time. And, and you know, of course, from, from, my, from a Black person's perspective, it's like, how could you not know, right? But, like, <laughs> but to, to everybody else, we saw it for the first time be undeniable. And what that caused was like a major response, a response that we had never seen before. And I don't want that to end. I don't want this tragedy to be forgotten. I don't want it to be sweep, swept under the rug. And like, now we just kind of fall back into a routine where we forget about it. The thing is, it's never been delivered. And so it's unfortunate it's that happened, but it's never been delivered in a way that you could not say to yourself, oh, well, that person probably did something. But this was a case where it's like, no matter what that person did, this was just inhumane. And if I could get everybody to understand the layers of how that's happening so much, and not necessarily to that extreme, but like through microaggressions and through discrimination, through bias, just on a regular basis, because people just don't have the understanding of the layers in mind and don't know where to go and get it and don't know where to pull it into their experience. They just don't know. So I see the level of capital and efforts that opened up as a response. I'm like, wow, you know, if, if we could really deliver that, you know, not, not based on a tragedy, but if I could wave a wand and deliver to you the full understanding of it, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever seen um, the Fifth Element Super Bowl movie and the woman, she can read books really fast. 
So she could, she just, or she could like look at the internet and like, like taking all this information. And then she did. And then she got really, really sad because she's like, oh my God, people are terrible. <laughs> I don't want people to go there. Like, I don't want you to be depressed. But that moment of being able to like own the understanding of the human experience on deeper levels can cause change in a way we've never seen before or are now seeing some remnants of right now. Thank you very, very much for coming on, Shelley. It's been a a privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and our listeners today. We hugely appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to season two of Starts at the Top. We'd like to say thank you to Shelley and all of our guests from this year, from season one and season two. And thanks to you for all of your comments, your reviews and your shares over the past few months. Thanks to my mum for reviewing every single episode, I think. We've really enjoyed watching the podcast grow and that's down to you, our listeners. A huge thank you from me as well. We really appreciate all the lovely feedback we've had and a massive thank you to all of our wonderful guests. And please do let us know what you would like us to cover in next year's season, season three. We will be back for that. As usual, please do send us any other thoughts that you have, any other feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel you'll do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your ideas, questions or thoughts with us over on Twitter where it starts at the top one and you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thank you to all our listeners and we'll speak to you soon. A very Merry Christmas to all of you, our lovely listeners yeah happy christmas and to you zoe and to you paul and to you beth (laughs) our producer